Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Fliplet podcast. My name's Ian Broom and I'm joined today by James Grafton. So James, let's start with you introducing yourself. Hi there, I'm James and I work as an account manager out in uh, Google, California. Excellent. And how long have you worked at Google? I've worked there about two and a half years now. Uh-huh. And were you always in California? Uh, no, previously I was actually in London for about one and a half years. So I've been out in uh, California for just over a year now. And what did you do prior to working at Google? Maybe let's start with what you studied. Oh yeah, um, so previously to working at Google I actually went to the University of Sussex and I studied uh, computer science and AI. Uh, about 2004 I started now, so it's been a while. And uh, does that mean that you have an opinion on the latest buzz around AI? Yeah, in a way it's great to see um, a resurgence of interest in the field. Um, it does kind of go in waves. So, you know, originally when it came out, there was the ability to write kind of creative pieces and it was held as the next big computational breakthrough. But, uh, you know, it's edging, edging in an interesting direction as we move forward, but still the, the work remains incremental and are specified to quite narrow fields of intelligence. Mm. So I've been having a debate inside the company recently about is AI just machine learning, or is it actually AI? Well, so there's an interesting article by Zuckerberg recently with the Java system that he created, and he had a pretty relevant comment on this, wherein um, AI is AI up to the point where you understand what it's doing, and at that point, it's just maths. Um, so, you know, as we push the, the, the field forward, um, and uncover greater levels of complexity. Uh, we're basically just creating more advanced uh, mathematical equations to represent like narrow fields of information, essentially. So that would kind of suggest that it's uh, AI is AI until you understand it, and then you can label it machine learning because you you understand that the machine is learning it by applying a process. Is yeah, essentially. Um, although really, a machine's not learning anything. It's just creating. Uh, complex mathematical models essentially um, so yeah the the biggest breakthrough is still yet to come you know the the idea of the the next wave of general intelligence and be able to do like fully unsupervised learning on uh, unspecified problem domains I think that's the next massive breakthrough but we're not near to even starting that analysis yet so do you think therefore all of the buzz around AI and the startups that are being acquired because of their AI and things like that is kind of warranted to be called AI or? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's a very loose definition. There is some level of artificial intelligence there. If you think of intelligence restricted to a narrow field and being governed by um, learning patterns. And there was like a, a pretty big breakthrough over the last 10 years in general with a deep uh, level convolutional learning. So basically with the traditional method of acquiring um, models for narrow fields, they managed to push down the error ratio to be able to make serious breakthroughs in very specific fields. So like AlphaGo was a good example of that. It seems to me like what a lot of the buzz around AI is actually just an extension of big data because big data was, okay, we've got vast amounts of data. How do we manage it? How do we query it? What do we do with it? And to me, it was always like, yeah, that's great, but is that really the problem? The problem isn't storing data. The problem is what are you doing with the data? And it seems to me like AI is currently being labeled as what you do with big data. 
Um, I guess it could be seen as an intermediary step. So the AI acts as a classification system and a way for us to more effectively process large data sets. Um, so in that respect, it's actually providing a great deal of value because people have a large amount of data and they're not even able to understand how to start structuring it before they can even infer its meaning. So while it's not able to infer meaning and acquire knowledge about complex data fields, like for example, a big breakthrough that is actually useful to an end user is something like uh, you know an image search where uh, a computer could infer structured data from that image without like supervised learning. Um, and prior to that, you just have a whole bunch of random images and it would be almost impossible to search through. And what I also find fascinating about this is the commoditization of, of all of these problems that are being solved and they're now being solved usually in the form of services. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard recently about the Amazon Web Services updates, but they've got their image processing um, APIs, but they're also adding in a lot more uh, language processing APIs to support uh, the Amazon Echo. Yeah. Um, but they're offering them all as just services. So they're like, we're going to invest a stack of effort in building out these services. You don't really need to understand what's going on. We're going to give you an interface for using it, and then we're going to process it, obviously, on our massive cloud infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, once you have that classification in place and you've processed a level of structured data, you can provide value and end services to consumers. Um, and obviously, once you have that inherent value, you could bring people into an ecosystem. So uh, I think there's similar services that you could see with like Google Image Search or potentially uh, Google Home Assistant, where you could give unstructured data a speech and it could return specific values from its uh, knowledge graph. Um, so there's, you're, you're seeing that kind of just coming into a greater consumer space as we move forward. And it's interesting to see the direction that the industry is taking with these even incremental breakthroughs of AI. Yeah, I'm sure it's not the end of where we'll see AI bandied around to be yeah. assisting things. Uh, we've got a few uh, AI-powered features in Fliplet coming up. Excellent. Questionable about how much AI is really going on under the hood. Sure. I guess until somebody realizes what's going on and then it's just an algorithm. Yeah, exactly. So what did you do after uni? Um, so after university, I started off as a graduate in IBM Hursley. Um, what's so Hursley? Oh, so it's a small uh, country house in the middle of a field near Winchester in southwest England. Um, and it was where they built uh, Spitfires in the Second World War. So it was quite an interesting location to start off on. And I worked as a software engineer out of there for three years. And then I moved to London and did a, a similar job uh, for IBM as a software engineer there for a few years following that. Cool. But no AI while you were there? <coughs> um, no, it was mostly traditional, just algorithmic programming. Uh, did some development in Java, some level of JavaScript as well, um, and a little bit of C and C++. Um, but it was very traditional um, uh, software engineering. There wasn't any artificial intelligence involved. I don't think it was as a resurgent field as it is now and had the, the same kind of popularity uh, in the late uh, 2000s. And what were the key things that you took from IBM after being there for about six years? Um, so... I think a way of working within a wider team and being able to uh, get things done with a larger group of individuals. 
So you work, you figure out how to make the most of all of the people you work with and how to effectively deliver towards a specific objective given like multiple fields of input from different individuals. So, so what did you do next? Oh yeah, so uh, you know, I'd been at IBM for around five years or so, but I'd often attended um, startup events throughout London. So it was just a, it was a, a place of interest because of the, the way that they worked and the, the kind of engineering excellence surrounding them about you know, early validation, product market fit, um, rapid iteration. That's something that really appealed after working in a large organization. Um, so after going to Launch48 and a few other places, I think I ran into you quite a few times and we just kind of started the conversation about our opportunities within startups in London. And it seemed like there was kind of a good fit uh, when you were starting the Fliplet product. So I kind of jumped on board and started working with you guys. Mm. And so again, continuing my question of comparing kind of, uh, say, engineering processes and cultures. Yeah. <laughs> how was, um, how is kind of leaving IBM, what is it, like 250,000, 300,000 people yeah, organization so. and coming and joining, what were you, like the fifth, fourth employee at a startup? Yeah. Um, and, um, and obviously having, you know, ultimate freedom, um, but yeah. also probably way more responsibility. Sure. Again, what, what were you, kind of what did you take out of that from a cultural perspective? I think it's, uh, it's an amazing opportunity to kind of explore the most effective way of achieving the goals that you've kind of outlined in terms of like engineering excellence, right? So, you know, it's good to kind of put a stick in the sand and say, we want to rapidly iterate, want to develop a high quality um, solutions to your customers. You want to get like, um, you know, the best uh, valued product as you can, as rapidly as you can as well. Um, and then it's a question of like experimenting on how best you can facilitate those processes. So I think it's great being in a position where like, you know, you uh, have the best opportunity to succeed and to fail. And, you know, going through both of those processes and really rapidly uh, learning what things work and what things don't. and you know, being able to create something from the ground up. I think that's a learning experience that's uh, valuable wherever you plan to go next. Um, and then after working at Fliplet for, I think, a couple of years, mm. um, you then joined Google. Yeah. And uh, um, what were the, or what are the products you've worked on while you were at Google in the, have you always been an account manager? Uh, yeah, I've always been an account manager since I've been there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, part of the, the living room team and, you know, worked on various aspects of uh, Chromecast, did some uh, some kind of uh, work with that product on uh, gaming initiatives that we had with connected devices on TVs and uh, just been involved in various different products since I've been there throughout the kind of uh, living room doing account management and uh, working with a whole series of interesting partners. And what was it like going from because you were a software engineer uh, when you were at Fliplet mm -hmm. to then go into account management. I mean, was that a big leap? How did you it's manage actually, that? Uh, it's really enjoyable, uh, specifically because, you know, within uh, Google, most, if not all, the people outside of like direct commercial contact are pretty technical. So like whatever role you're doing, a level of uh, technical aptitude it just helps you be a lot more effective. So the idea is, is that if you have a role that encompasses something that involves um, applied technical knowledge as well as the ability to work with other people and like an understanding of commercial and product, um, then 
it's actually makes it uh, quite an enjoyable experience to go through because then the skills that you have are directly applicable to the kind of role that you're undertaking as well. So you joined the living room team um, uh, as an account manager. Did mm. you still have to undergo, uh, Google is known for being quite rigorous in their technical tests. I yeah. think we've had a couple of conversations about yeah, them in the sure. past. Uh, did you still have to go through any technical tests in order to get that role? But And, and I guess to what level were they technically testing you? Yeah, it's to, I mean, it's to quite a high degree of technical tests um, because it's a role that uh, encompasses uh, several aspects of um, of the organization. It's something that's like transferable across various different teams. So the idea is that like you're kind of a, a technical account manager and you're able to understand commercial product and uh, technical knowledge to that extent too. Um, and, you know, it's a similar process to uh, interviewing as, you know, an engineer, apart from maybe some some level of less extreme testing, but still like quite a high technical aptitude is kind of expected. Mm -hmm. And then while you've been working at Google, you've had the opportunity to move to Mountain View. Yeah. Um, what was the opportunity that uh, kind of came up and ultimately meant that it would be better for you to be there than say in London? I think it's just the aspect of uh, having so many people within the living room team are based out of that uh, vicinity and you end up just wanting to keep in contact with the wider team, especially when you're in between partners and um, the engineering side of things. You end up having to visit so often that often it's just the best idea to be as closely situated to the wider team as possible. So you're actually able to get get more done and understand the product better and just like create uh, tighter relationships with the rest of the team really. Mm. So, uh, so you've been given the opportunity to have more of an impact on on the wider team and the product and mm -hmm. things like that by being closer and obviously not stuck uh, having to spend your entire night on conference calls to yeah, San Francisco, exactly. which is always a good opportunity. <laughs> exactly, um, and uh, and potentially you know get a little bit more work-life balance. I'm guessing there was also an aspect of like moving to the mothership as opposed to being on a satellite ship, or yeah. do you think that's not really an issue? I think it. I mean, it, there's there's positives to both sides of it. I think, but. Imbalance is just a, it's a different experience and an opportunity to um, explore a new area and meet new people and uh, you know investigate uh, a new culture firsthand as well. Um, so when you have that opportunity, it seems like a great idea just to go out there and see what happens, really. So I, I know lots of people, particularly in startups and tech, you know, they aspire to potentially you know move to the valley, yeah. um, and you've obviously done that move. So I guess like uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like what are the good and the bad um, of of Silicon Valley, say, compared to somewhere like London, which is less less kind of focused just purely on tech. Sure. Um, so you know. I guess in terms of culturally, um, uh, outside of a professional day-to-day -day experience, like London is, you know, probably uh, spoils you a little bit because it's one of the, the biggest cities in the world. It's it's massively professionally diverse as well. So, you know, if you work in technology, that's somewhat uncommon in London. So the people you meet, it'll be uh, more of a balanced conversation because everyone will bring like a different perspective to it and you'll often um, explore completely different areas, like you'll meet actors or directors or someone who works in a completely different field entirely, like maybe in academia or whatever else. Um, 
and then uh, professionally, uh, then sorry, uh, socially in Silicon Valley, the obviously the the little amount of downside there is that uh, it is relatively um, unilaterally focused on a single field. Um, so that does give rise to a certain culture. Um, so for better or worse, I mean, the, the difficult aspect of it is that obviously with the lack of professional diversity, you get less uh, varied perspectives on the rest of the world and it's a little bit more focused. But on the flip side, um, you know, in terms of professional stimulation and the number of interesting people within your own field in that aspect, there's so many opportunities for learning there as well and so many opportunities for growth and understanding a lot more uh, about the field and the, the surrounding aspects of it too. So let's kind of focus on that. Um, I think you actually mentioned this this term when we were discussing this topic via email, yeah. monoculture. Oh, I see. Uh, so, it, and I mean, that that's possibly a little bit strong, but would you use yeah. it as a definition? So um, I guess, how have you found to break out of that monoculture? Because you know, when I've been to Silicon Valley, I definitely feel like I am in, in the heart of the tech industry. Sure. But I also feel like, as you pointed out, in London, you can always escape because you literally walk out of your office and yeah. you're in the mixture of people who are doing completely different things. Whereas you leave your office and you go to Starbucks in San Francisco and the guy behind you is pitching a company. The guy next to you is talking about engineers and how to like get them to, to solve bugs. You, you just, I feel like you can't break out of it. So have you found a way to kind of create that downtime for yourself? Sure. I think, you know, part of the diversity and part of the attraction of California to begin with was uh, being able to travel in a new country. And I think that creates like a really interesting experience because you know, West Coast America, you've got like Portland, you've got Seattle, you've got San Diego, you've got LA, and those are like all hubs of kind of different cultures. So you can just immerse yourself in another kind of like cultural extreme, but that's like really interesting onto itself. Um, so making like uh, different friends in those areas, I think is a, a real big help. Um, and then on top of that, um, you know, going around areas of uh, California and just exploring kind of like the natural interests around there, meeting people along those ways. So going off to Yosemite and going down to uh, Yosemite Valley, seeing all like the, the natural uh, mountains and fields around there, and then going to um, Lake Tahoe, you got some like skiing and snowboarding, um, or you can go to Sonoma or Napa Valley, and they've got like some amazing like wine culture around there. And you know, certainly you go to Sonoma Town Square and you don't see a whole bunch of startups around there. So there's definitely opportunities in areas where you can meet a, a, a real diversity of people. I think it's just a case of uh, getting out there and exploring the rest of the world really. So one of the things that I know uh, European, uh, a little bit more socialist in their perspectives than mm -hmm. America that's typically really quite seen as quite aggressively capitalist. How have you found the transition from a European kind of work ethic to an American work ethic? What are your observations? Sure. Um... So I think there's like there's benefits to either approach. Obviously, like the uh, explicit difference between them is, uh, say, the the vacation that's taken uh, that's default in Europe versus say America. Um, what is that? So I think like default in say the UK is around twenty five days, and the default in the US is around maybe fifteen days or so. Um, but the yeah, the work culture in America um, is probably a little bit more uh, unilaterally focused and intense, but in that way, maybe 
some some level of greater intellectual stimulation and an interesting kind of place to be in terms of um, getting to learn a lot and getting to experience a little bit more potentially. Um, and then maybe the work culture in Europe is a little bit um, a little bit less intense, um, but there's still like you know London is a capital city and there's a lot of like a strong work ethic around here and there's a lot of work focus still so I don't think it's like a massive cultural difference between the two places basically um, I think the main difference the minor differences are kind of like there's a small difference obviously in cultural diversity um, over there there's a little bit more of a uh, in greater level of intensity on work but I think the more you travel and the more people you meet the more you notice a similarity rather than a difference. Okay, so it's not as jarring as, as uh, potentially portrayed. Uh, I guess it depends on the kind of work environment you've been used to previously, yeah. But I mean, I think you could get that in any country, right? So I mean, if you say uh, worked in a small town and a small organization in England and then you move to London and you work for a large organization, then you could experience quite uh, a jarring cultural switch depending on you know what those two organizations were like um, so I think it's similar to you know moving to a different country and working in a different way there um, I think it's very much what you'd want to make of it really and it's interesting uh, a lot has been said about uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley and like a, a massive like real estate bubble um, with prices seemingly mm. going up never-ending um, and I guess it'd be interesting to get your opinion on that as well as just the more general kind of cost of living because I, I always find it interesting um, uh, when you know again comparing it to London London's not exactly known as a cheap city yeah. um, but uh, but uh, I was blown away when I was last in um, uh, Silicon Valley and I was kind of looking around at, at different areas uh, and their real estate costs and it's like, I don't know, there's like a, a serious concentration of the 10 most expensive regions to live in in the world are literally in and around Silicon Valley yeah. uh, with a couple of exceptions like Manhattan and you know LA and things like this um, and I was like what you know how how has that ended up happening in the whole of the US so um, yeah any any kind of thoughts or any like deductions you've been able to make by obviously being in the thick of it and trying to sort out these types of issues as part of your move yeah I mean I think whenever you get a, a concentration of commercial activity in a city center, it's always going to push up prices somewhat. Um, you know, there's uh, it's interesting because some of like the most expensive areas to live in the world are also some of the most least expected too. So I mean, San Francisco and, and New York are definitely up there as well as London, um, but also like uh, Sydney's like one of the highest, and so's Vancouver, funnily enough, as well. Um, so I guess it, it really depends on the area you're specifically looking to live in and, you know, the area, the kind of uh, experience you're looking to have. Um, you know, in terms of the way that San Francisco is structured, it's in a difficult location because obviously it's built onto a peninsula. Um, so the difference with London is that obviously it can expand outwards and it's got strong public transport infrastructure, whereas um, San Francisco is maybe a little bit more condensed into a peninsula and it's not not many places where it can expand out to, as well as like not having an easier, as, as easy to access uh, public transport infrastructure either. 
Um, and so overall cost of living, do you think that um, it's basically the same uh, as, as what you were experiencing in London or not really? Depends on where you work. <laughs> I mean, every, uh, every consideration with cost of living is relevant to uh, you know, remuneration on local, uh, locally paid jobs, right? Um, so I guess maybe there's a little bit less flexibility on where you could work if you live in the Bay Area or if you want to live in San Francisco, there's less flexibility in where you can work to be able to afford to live there than compared to like London, where in London's just a far larger city and more expansive. So you'd have that, that greater level of choice, basically. Mm. And I think it's interesting what you say about that kind of concentration of organizations wanting to be in a certain area. And yeah. then obviously remuneration rising to kind of meet it. Uh, you definitely don't get that impression in London. I mean, obviously everybody knows the West is quite an expensive area to live, but there are so many other places that you can go to live that you don't feel compelled to go and live there. It's optional. But I think one of the things that uh, is interesting, what you say about the geography of Silicon Valley and San Francisco being very much on that peninsula. Yeah. Uh, I mean, close to half of it is kind of, reserve or, or, or like parkland isn't it and then you've got mm -hmm. like housing can go around that and it's pretty high density not high rise but yeah high, you know there's there, a, there isn't spare land there's around. ordinance about building uh buildings too high as well so there's like a maximum number of stories you can build so you know i guess if you're looking at it from pure supply and demand the demand is higher well the demand is increasing while the supply isn't mm. maybe increasing in tandem so that's going to push up prices and this obviously creates a concentration then back up the chain, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden it's like, hang on, my housing costs more. So to have the same quality of life, uh, I need to be paid more. And so yeah. it's, a, it's uh, I definitely noticed this about, you know, I mean, you know, it doesn't, it's not a very long drive between some of the major, I mean, I think they're now the biggest five companies in the world and they're all headquartered there. Yeah. And yeah. you can literally drive between them all, which means that all of their employees in the head offices are based around that area. Uh, and it's like, hang on, they're all in competition for real estate and, yeah. and you know, groceries and other local services that you can't import. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting. And it's uh, I remember talking to people out there and they were saying that at like the 2000 bubble, so many people were trying to leave. You couldn't get what are those uh, trailers that uh, that people like. Oh, U-Haul? Yeah, U-Haul, that's <laughs> it. People were like, you basically can't find U-Hauls. I see. Because there's so many leave and no one comes back. So they, the only reason why they're coming back is if they go and get them and they pick them up empty and they oh, bring them back I in. Oh, I see, yeah. Which is a very slow process. City. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, it's basically like, you you know when there's an ex exodus happening in the real estate market's going to drop in price no because you can't that. get any U-Hauls. Uh, and I thought, that's a really interesting like economic indicator. Wow. Um, yeah. But it's like an early stage indicator right there of people leaving the city, huh? Exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, so I guess it's been really interesting. I mean, um, just kind of a, a, a very much like a, a personal question, but one that I've always wondered about. So um, Google has these uh, big luxury buses. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and because Google's headquarters is not based in San Francisco, but lots of people choose to live in San Francisco, they, they put on these buses. Sure. Um, and I believe that you take one of these buses. Yeah. Um, so uh, is it basically like a portable office? You get on it in the morning, it's got Wi-Fi, and then you basically, you get an hour and a half uh, of like work done before you get to the office, or it's not quite as practical as it seems? Um, yeah, I mean, you, 
you could work on the bus if you want. I mean, everyone gets a seat, so, and you have internet connectivity. So yeah, there's definitely the option there to get stuff done before you enter the office or potentially uh, take some time out, listen to some podcasts and maybe read a book. So it's, it's not necessarily like you get on board that bus and the Google culture starts straight away. It's a little bit more relaxed than that. Uh, I guess it could be whatever you want it to be, right? Mm. So there's the flexibility there. I think it's interesting because when you're driving up and down the freeways out there, you definitely see a lot of those buses obviously servicing yeah. all the major technology campus, campuses. Um, and uh, I don't know, there's a certain envy when you're looking at them thinking, I would really much rather not have to drive in this traffic. <laughs> I'd really rather somebody else was driving and I could be doing something else like work or podcasts. Ah, that's true. Well, you never know. The future could be bringing in some level of automated transport. <laughs> Possibly. That'll maybe help you out. Maybe we'll save that topic for uh, the next podcast. Thank sure. you very much for joining me today, James. Um, uh, how can people kind of find out more about you or, or keep in touch? Do you use social media, LinkedIn, something like that? Uh, the best way to get in touch is probably just uh, send me over an email, just old-fashioned like that. Um, so that's uh, jrgrafton at gmail.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much for participating, and uh, I look forward to catching up again soon. Great. Thanks very much.